0: All right, we've got a lot to talk about today because we are joined by two incredible people. Our guest today is Alexander Patry, who was recommended to me by our guest cameo co-host, Skylar Payne. So today we've got both of them on. I'm super excited to talk with you all i know skylar and alex have a little history maybe it's worth just skylar you giving us the background on how you both know each other uh yeah so
1: i worked for uh uh, years at linkedin and uh, alex was basically my tech lead uh while i was at linkedin so uh definitely uh, a lot of like what i know and i'm able to do like alex definitely mentored me and uh helped grow me into the engineer i am so definitely uh really appreciated uh being under his tutelage you know while i was at linkedin um Mm. but yeah definitely like alex is a super sharp guy and like has like a huge breadth of knowledge and so i'm very excited too to see what he has to share with the
0: community there we go so alex we've put you on a pedestal hopefully it is not (laughs) too scary to live up
2: (laughs) yeah i'll try to live up to the expectations Uh, there's
0: only one way to go from here (laughs) <laughs> uh, so basically, man, I know that we want to talk today, like our, our full conversation is going to be like productivity and job search and job recommendations at LinkedIn and how you are doing machine learning with that. But before we get into all that, I'd love to hear a little background about you. You're not from the US, but now you're living in the US. I, you speak French for some reason. Yes. Why is that?
2: Yes, so I'm a French-Canadian. I'm from the the area of Montreal. Uh, I did my PhD in statistical machine translation there, completed in 2010, and uh, worked for around five years in in a small startup on uh, name entity recognition and and information extraction. And at some point, the LinkedIn recruiters reached out on LinkedIn and said, hey, do you want to work with us? So I was a I, I started those conversations and, and seven years ago, I, I moved uh, in the Bay Area and it was the, the start of my American life.
0: That's so meta that LinkedIn recruiters reached out to you on LinkedIn. And now we're going to be talking about job search and job recommendation. <laughs> uh, so the I think the main thing that I want to know about is this story that you put and we talked about before what happened? Where where were you at? Because you described like a transformation and this pain that you were going through at LinkedIn. Maybe Skylar was there for that. I don't know. But it might have yes. been. Yeah. So talk to us about the before.
2: Yeah. So so I started to work with the talented careers AI three years ago, and uh, when I joined, at least for job recommendation, uh, we were at the end of our growth cycle. So we had models that worked for us well for a while, uh, linear models that were huge to train. We were able to have a couple of these models at once, but it was hard to scale and have more machine linear engineers contribute to them. It um, was large linear models with random effects. So we had part of the model trains for each member, part of the model trained for each jobs. And we needed this thing to be retrained daily because this is how we did personalization with those custom uh, customized models. Um, the operational costs started to grow as we had more engineers working on those models. So if you have just two or three models that are huge that you retrain daily and you experiment with, it's kind of okay. But when you want to have a dozen models, which was our goal there, things started to, to fall apart at some point. So we wanted to retrain dailies and our... Flows on the grid started to take more than a day to run, so some things didn't add up. So we were in constant uh, nurturing and, and uh, of these flows to make sure that they were finishing in time and that everything w- was working well. Uh, and and it, it had a huge operational uh, cost for us. Hmm.
0: You remember those days, Skylar? Yeah, yeah, definitely remember them very
1: fondly. You know, I think like uh, you know, experimental bandwidth is always like a huge uh, problem and bottleneck. You know we have so many engineers and so many talented people with so many great ideas. But like at the end of the day, if you can only be testing, you know, one or two things at a time, uh, like a lot of success really comes down to how many times a bat do you have? And, uh, yeah, so definitely this was a time period where we're really focusing on like, how do we improve that experimental bandwidth?
0: And there's something else that you mentioned, Alex, that for me, it felt huge is the feedback that you were getting from the users and then like how that went into the after i guess but maybe we should we should talk about like what the transformation arc looked yep. like that and sounds how good. that so, played out
2: yeah let, let's go there so uh Scatter was a key piece in this in this effort so at this time we knew that our productivity wasn't where it was supposed to be we knew that some of our modeling decisions were highly coupled with, with those outcomes. And in the background, there was a, an effort that was linkedin wide to say, okay, how do we make our engineers more productive? So Scatter and I jumped on this bandwagon and we started to think about, okay, how can we deploy more of these models? How can we uh, increase our experimentation bandwidth? When we looked at our models, one thing we noticed is that most of our issues were coming from the size of the models and the frequency at which we retrained them and the complexity of just pushing those big things around. And, and the reason we needed those kind of big models is because all of our personalization were happening inside the models themselves so in the weights. So the thing that we did is we refactored our models to say, well, moving forward, we want to do personalizations in our features instead. So we'll learn more about the members with the kind of activities they have on the website. We'll learn more about the jobs with the kind of, uh, of uh, members that interact with them, and we'll feed it as features to our model. The thing that it did is uh, instead of having each model doing personalization on its own, we could just take it out, have a constant cost, do rock-solid activity features engineering, and feed it in all of our uh, experimental models. Another benefit is that we don't just have one model, right? We have job recommendation, we have job search, we have the same thing on the, the recruiter side. We have model for notifications. All of those things we could create leverage with those activity features and start to, to do personalization at scale uh, just by doing the, this uh, model refactoring. It also created the capacity to move from linear models to TensorFlow. So now we can, be a, we can follow more closely the state of the arts in terms of, of, of ranking and uh, our, our modeling approach.
1: Yeah, yeah. This was definitely like a period where, uh, you know, a lot of people, because the the personalization weights were in there, there was just a lot of struggle when people would try like new ideas just because like, you know, training all those weights could take some time. And also just like, generally speaking, like the more things you have, more moving pieces there are, the higher like probability of failure, you know, and so like transient issues just kind of like break up your workflow and it makes it hard to kind of like iterate uh, and get to a solution. So uh, this, this is a big lift, I remember, you know, trying to get to like, how, how do you like factor out sort of like that uh, personalization in the model and factor it out to features? It um, you know, like brings up an interesting, just like question about like, you know, what are the pros and cons of like doing personalization at the feature level versus model level? Uh, that I, I often don't see conversations about that, you know, but uh, I think it's definitely like an interesting thing that we like grappled with at LinkedIn.
2: And to, to give an idea, before this uh, refactoring, it took one to two weeks once a model was ready to make it available online, and it was very high touch. Now, once a model is trained, it takes a couple of hours, and, and it can be online. And we added limitations of six to eight models or so that we could ramp at the same time before. Now, we don't really have limits anymore. We can just ramp as many as, as our traffic allows us to, to experiment. Whoa.
0: Whoa. So, huge success on that. Do you remember some... like? because Skylar's talking about some of these different hard conversations or hard things that you had to think through. And I imagine it was a little bit of like the unknown. It's like, well, we can go this way into the unknown and figure out if that's all right, or if that's going to do better, or we can try to optimize what we have just a little bit better and get incremental or menial uh, increases. Were there other hard conversations like that that you had that led to a significant increase and in this like this jump that you're talking
2: about um i th- th- things came to together I, th- I think you mentioned it it was a high risk right we were all nervous it took us a year to get from we have those huge model to we have our tensorflow model that are much more lightweight so there was a lot of anxiety during this transition and and uh, the, the other engineers uh, leading this, this transition uh, were very careful to make like small wins along the way, just validating things and, and and being cautious to make sure that we were making the right decision. So once we made the decision to pivot this way, uh, there were many people that were skeptics that we could do what we wanted to do. So we just needed to convince ourselves and, and to convince other people that was the right thing to do. So it, it's more those kinds of, of, of mitigation that we had to deal with. Yeah.
1: Yeah, LinkedIn, you know, I I recall, like had a pretty much a big history with using like these large personalized models. And so like there had been like already a lot of infrastructure built around it, uh, a lot of success, obviously, like using these. And so like a lot of people just felt like that that was the right way to do things, you know. And so when we come to the board and say like, hey, maybe we could do it a different way. Definitely, there was some skepticism. Um, But the the team that pushed this definitely like they did a great job of like de-risking things along the way. Dude, that is
2: hilarious. (laughs) So, so, if you in a company and want to make this kind of transition, be sure to have your leadership support. Otherwise, those conversations becomes very difficult when you have uh, people, seniors from sister organization, being doubtful about you if you don't have support from oh, from your yeah. own executive chain. Those things are super difficult.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's so that's so interesting. How it's like you had this huge model, and it was obviously it had a lot of bottlenecks, and you're coming to the higher up saying, look, we want to change it because of X, Y, Z. And there is already this culture that's been basically in bre- it's embedded into yeah. the fundamentals. And so they're saying like, well, what do we need to change things for? Right. And that yeah. is this side of ML Ops that we talk about a lot, which is like the cultural side. Right. And so was there, besides these like incremental wins or the small wins that you mentioned, Alex, are there other things that you felt like gave you firepower in those conversations?
2: Um, It it, it was really productivity. We had a clear path on how engineers can be more productive. and, And Skyler said it well, you need to do a bunch of experimentations. AI is not like traditional software engineer where you have like your master branch and then you use your feature branch, merge it back, and you have linear kind of evolution, it's really more of a, a Darwinist approach where you have a bunch of things that live, the stronger one keep on living and then branch out to a bunch of other things that live, then you, you keep on having this evolutionary approach. And the more mutation you can make and test, the stronger your system will be in the end. So that's, that was what, what convinced us that it was the right thing to do. Even if, if we were ready to take a step back just to have this velocity, it turned out that It was an improvement overall, and we had the the velocity in addition to it. But this was the thing that sold it for us, the the productivity gain.
1: You know, I want to say, like, one, love the analogy to sort of Darwinism. Like, I I think it's so true. Um, But uh, I think there was kind of like a little kernel there that uh, maybe is easy to miss. And that, you know, when you're going for these productivity gains like this, I think, like, uh, one of the challenges is a lot of people really focused on basically getting parity, you know, let's get something that like works exactly the, the same way. Um, but a lot of times, because like the amount of times at bat that you go, uh, sometimes it's maybe okay to like let yourself slip a little bit on the performance if it means you can be way more productive. Um, so I think like sometimes we, it, I remember grappling with this when we were talking about these productivity efforts and, uh, you know, talking with our leadership about is parity like the right goal.
0: And so... Interesting that you say that because I visualize you ever play like the video games where they show the and you look at the athlete and it shows like what they're good in, right? And it has like the circle and then they have like a 99 over here and whatever stat. And then down here it's a little less, but over here it's better. And so I was kind of visualizing that where you're taking one of these players and then going to another one and saying, well, it's okay if this accuracy or this is not as high because we're gaining over here in this stat. And so yeah. it makes complete sense.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a it's a question of, of trade-off in the end. And, and we, we learned the kind of trade-off we want to do, and we've we've been successful with optimizing for for productivities and and uh letting our engineers innovate from, from the bottom.
0: So There's something else that you said that I thought was fascinating, and that's how machine learning engineers don't produce code. They produce knowledge through (laughs) experimentation. Can you dive into that one and talk to us about that?
2: Yeah, I think I'll piggyback on the the evolutionary metaphor I did uh, before the goal of machine learning engineers is not to come up with like some java or c+ code and say, okay, I'm done with this piece and I need to have some 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 latency and things like that the, the, the goal is it's never done machine learning if you're in the big company of these your models are always evolving so you're not thinking about the end state you're just thinking about what's my next step and and how I can I, I can make those things um, make those things evolve um, so so, Means that you need each time you run an experiment. You even if you don't lift your metrics, if you learn something new that'll inform the other step, you're you're still at a the win there. So you just need to acknowledge that the the goal of each experiment, while you want to lift metric, is really to gather knowledge, better understand your problem, and keep pushing and keep iterating and keep learning and keep making the ecosystem uh,
0: better. So that is. That that like just begs the question of how can you make it so you're not the only one that knows that information? Like you do these things and you have all this great information in your head. Like what do you? How do you create a central repository for that?
2: That's a good question. Right now, I'm trying to tackle this. I, I don't have a good end uh, answer yet. So there's a lot of tribal knowledge, at least in in my group, where. When you, someone talks about something, someone will come up and say, oh yeah, we tried this a couple of years ago. These are the results. I don't have documentation to point it to you, but this is what I remember from this thing. And, and often devils in the details. So the way you did something, even the same idea, you can execute it in many ways, right? And sometimes only a subset is successful. So keeping track of, of these details is is uh, is important. Um, I think it's a place where academics did really good. Uh, what I see at least in in the... In in my group, in the industry, we're we're not super good. We're like a Markovian process. We remember the last state, we plan the next one, and then we forget everything that came before. So I'm still trying to figure this one out. I'm I'm, uh, happy to get a suggestion from people who are successful at that. You
1: you know, like uh, on that topic, I I haven't tried implementing this myself, but I've uh, talked to a lot of people who've uh, talked about this with some success. Uh, I think this is like popularized by Microsoft, but they have like this team data science process. Uh, that kind of like has a sort of like process for like uh, having basically shareable results at like every stage of the process. I think there's still like a discoverability problem to solve yep. there of like, you know, how do people find the things? Um, but at least like this gives a hint at like what is maybe the the structure? Um, so that might be something to look at. Uh, but yeah, that's great. Uh, you know, so we talked uh, a little bit about sort of uh, all this experimentation that ML engineers need to do. And one of the things you mentioned sort of like in the brief uh, was that user complaints are kind of like a useful source of like understanding like what needs to change. Can you maybe like just describe that that process? Like how, how do we go from user complaints to what do we do for the model?
2: Yeah, sure. I, I can give a bit of the, the backstory there. Um, maybe two years ago. Well, the, let's take a step back. Job recommendations is a special beast, right? If you get recommended a bad movie on Netflix, <laughs> you're like, huh? Not, not what I want. I'll go to the next one or bad sponsored product. on Amazon, you're like, oh, they got this wrong this time. But if I recommend you jobs where you're obviously too senior for this job, but that's really off from LinkedIn that knows your profile, it's it's hard to justify and rationalize, right? Why am I seeing this job? What, what is LinkedIn doing? So there's a mm-hmm. lot of sensibility around recommendations of jobs. So we often get... Uh, Emotional message from from even people at LinkedIn and are like, why are you sending me this job? <laughs> and we're like looking at the job and we, why are we sending you this job? And th- that that's what we call face jobs at at, at uh, in, in our group. So th- there's this notion of there was a too many face for what we were comfortable with a couple of years ago. So we started to look at okay, uh, how can we deal with it? We've tried it for a while, and the state we were at is face can come from maybe it's a candidate selection problem. Because why was it selected in the first place? Maybe it's a feature problem. Why is this feature this value? Maybe it's a ranking problem. Why is it higher instead of lower in the results? And what happened is when a new issue come up, people will just send it to each other, right? And it was hard to get the accountability on why is it happening and then how do we fix it? So the first thing that, that I did when we started to tackle this problem is just say, okay, I made a decision, all of the issues with palm are candidate selection problem, and this is the lens we'll look at it. It's not 100% right, but at least it gives us uh, a way to have uh, actionable insights on how we can fix palm. Going forward, that that also means that the same team was answering to all of those complaints, uh, and just starting to investigate and say, okay, what happened in candidate selection that led to this results being uh, being returned? There was a bit of pushback at first. So when I started this process, the team took me in the room and said, well, we'll be doing that with all of our times, right? There's nothing else we'll have time to do but investigate issues. Um, so, so there was a culture change to address as well. So what I did is I just said, okay, I'll take the first month and I'll, I'll see what it looks like, how we can streamline, how we can set expectations so just setting a good process for, for intake of these what was <coughs> sorry was the first step uh, that i did and after that as we collected results there's a taxonomy of errors that started to to pop up so we knew that oh there's mismatch of this kinds that seems to be the main issues for this kind of problem or oh this kind of scenario issues happen for for in this kind of context and we started to have a better understanding of of the big issues just by categorizing the the on call that we get. And having the same team deal with those those issues and having the same team come up with resolutions helped a lot in, in understanding what were the what, what were the issues. We we didn't solve everything, but I think we made we made good progress there.
1: Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, that, that's super great. So it's like, uh, but it, this, I, I love hearing this uh, at the start of the journey. And I mean, when this started, I, I was still at LinkedIn, you know, so so like, yeah. I remember these times and whatnot. Um, Wait, when and, this started, uh, sorry
0: to cut you off Skylar, but yeah did I hear this right? That you were recommending employees at LinkedIn, other jobs, basically like trying to get them to leave LinkedIn? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, that,
1: that, that, that actually happens. Like every, every, everybody that goes to LinkedIn, right. Gets, can get job recommendations. Recommended. <laughs> you know, I, 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 always like made a joke. Like when you work at LinkedIn, one thing you get is like access to a free LinkedIn premium account, which is great for finding new jobs. Um, but yeah, LinkedIn <laughs> has a great culture of uh, sort of like transformation and supporting people on like their next plays. And so it, it's definitely like, they, they definitely have a culture of like, if you have like another play that you think aligns better with, uh, sort of like what you want out of your career, LinkedIn as a company is very supportive of that. Um, wow! And so like, it, it, it's definitely like a cool, cool vibe, I think. Uh, so sorry to cut you yeah. off.
0: Yeah. Go back into what, uh, what you were talking about before I jumped in. <laughs> no problem.
1: Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so I, I remember this time, you know, we're kicking this off and starting to like, uh, the, this team was like digging into uh, some of these uh, customer issues. Um, but like, what happened next? How did that evolve? You know, how did we go from like, Hey, we, now we have some user complaints. We have some tags on them that tell us like maybe what went wrong. Like, you know, how did we kind of like, uh, how did that process evolve over time?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. The first question we had from, from other people, uh, with whom we work was, how do you know you're making progress, right? Because it's, it's anecdotal. You get some anecdotal feedback. You, you have some, feedback piece on the on the side that are helping, but that are super biased and then hard to reason about and that are noisy. So how do you know that you're making progress? Uh, we spent a lot of time thinking about, okay, how can we use what's there? People can dismiss job on B and say, it's not for me, but they do that for many reasons. Some of them just dismiss everything they don't want to see anymore, whether it's relevant or not. And, and some people just mm-hmm. don't use it. So we, we don't have that many high-level executives that will go on LinkedIn job tabs and start dismissing things they don't like, right? So it's, it's, it's uh, very biased in terms of sorts of information. We had another piece of feedback that efficiency move with product change. So we had a, a feedback widget that started to show lower in the results. And then the, the metric changed completely for this feedback widget, just because user behavior is different. So we had no, no good stable way to do it. And and even just defining what's a bad result and having people agree what's a bad result and, and having um, having people aligned on this was a challenge. So what we did is uh, we decided to hire a team of, of linguists to just work with us. So we have now a team of linguists at LinkedIn whose job is to iterate on the definition of what's a bad job recommendation as far as LinkedIn is concerned. And they keep on evaluating our product on different surfaces. So now we're not limited by product where we have those feedback widgets. We can evaluate uh, bad results rate across all of our product line. and and. Uh, give us a, a very good source of information to understand where we are and start to understand if we're going in the right direction and putting some safeguard in place.
0: Wait, so why linguists? I didn't catch that one.
2: So challenge is it, it takes somewhat of an expert to understand if a job is good or bad for you, right? I. I it's hard for someone that's not in the field to understand, is it a good job or is it an okay job or is it a very bad job? So we simplified the task and said, okay, let's just look at very bad job and forget everything. So people that are not specialized in the field should know it. Uh, Then you have the choice of crowdsourcing or having an internal team of people dedicated to it. Uh, We, Given that we didn't even have good annotation guidelines, a good taxonomy of kind of errors that we wanted to look into, uh, the, the linguists were, were very helpful there because that's their bread and butter, trying to conceptualize uh, those taxonomies. So what kind of badge job do we get? And, and having some tools to know, are we aligned on our definition? And are we always answering the same thing in the same context? And now we uh, enter yeah, annotator agreements, those kind of things. So they can take on all of this process and, and keep improving it and, and uh, giving us good insights and, and uh, having a high quality process.
1: Yeah so that, it's worth it's worth noting that uh you know LinkedIn this isn't the only like team of linguists that are at LinkedIn um LinkedIn has like, uh, a very robust knowledge graph and uh linguists like work very closely with machine learning engineers to like define like what do the taxonomies of the various types of entities that we deal with at LinkedIn like companies and titles and skills etc um and you know it, even in my time at LinkedIn, you could see how like our the robustness and complexity of our understanding of these concepts like evolved uh, as like linguists iterated on it. Um, so it's very cool to hear that we're doing that for like bad job recommendations as well.
2: So we we yeah it it's been helpful. Our challenge now is how do we scale this so we can't ask all linguists annotate millions of of examples. So at least we can have checkpoint and know like each month how good we're doing. Now we're we're looking, our next step is how do we use this kernel of knowledge and try to personalize it? And when we run an experiment, we can have indicators of of whether we're getting better or worse in terms of, of bad recommendations.
0: So if I'm understanding this correctly, it went from like the before was really these huge models and you weren't really sure if they were giving the right job recommendations. And you had to not only transform the technical side of these models to make them something smaller and easier to iterate on, easier to train, and easier to deploy. But then you also had to make sure that that ground truth or what it was predicting was a much better fit. So there was much more than just this like technical side of the, the model. It was also the... I mean, I guess it still is tech, but but like bringing in the linguists and having to do that on this seems like something that is, for me, I guess, is it doesn't seem like it is a technical side. It seems like a very creative thing. And I guess at LinkedIn, it's more common uh, use case because they are using linguists in other areas. Is there other stuff that had to happen? Like the before seems like, probably so far away to you, Alex, but then yeah. was there other transformations that, that happened? Because it's like a 3D full-on transformation here, not just like one thing going from a large model to a smaller model, but you're also bringing in these linguists. What else happened?
2: Yeah, um, let's see. So, so the linguists are, are j- just one last thing on the linguists. We, we have a lot of single and LinkedIn on what's a good job, right? If you apply on a job, we have a good understanding that you probably like this job. If you save it, same thing. It's just negative signals. We had a big gap there. So this is where uh, linguists can help us understand all of those unlabeled data. How good are we there? And, and how much of these are very bad results that we want to avoid? And in terms of transformation that we went through, um, a big one for us um, has been thinking about what we want to optimize in terms of metric. So that th- there's a... A couple of years ago, we're looking, okay, let's try to grow the number of, uh, of of job applications as much as we can. And if you just go for it directly, what happens is that the good models would keep the very good jobs and the good jobs would act as up for all of the applications. So you would have like a couple of jobs with thousands of applicants and a bunch of jobs with not that many applicants and, and not enough to be successful. Um, so when we looked at it, we said, well, maybe it's not applications that we should optimize for. So we started to think, okay, how can we, Change the objective of our model so that we're more aligned with matching people and making hiring happens instead of just looking at those top funnel signals like job applications. So that that's another big change that's still in progress, but that we're making to make a, to, to make our model better. And it, it it's until you look at the data and you see what happens, it's hard to to uh, to, to see this problem coming.
1: Yeah, I would love to dig into that and in some some of the challenges a little bit because uh, I, I I recall you know uh, before Jobs started kind of like really digging into this and focusing on it, uh, we did a similar thing on the the recruiter side. Um, you know, when I first started at LinkedIn, we were very focused on optimizing for whether a recruiter messages somebody. But you know, at the end of the day, if we want people to get hired, we need like to make sure there's two way interest. You know, um, but you know, some of the challenges we faced were. Uh, you have much less of that, you know, you, you have a lot of clicks, you have m- fewer messages sent, you have fewer messages accepted. Um, and LinkedIn luckily has some concept of like, you can accept or decline a message from a recruiter. And so we, we were able to use that. Um, but definitely, I remember there was huge cultural challenges, you know, just of uh, lots of people have different opinions about like what the right thing should be. Um, And then also there's problems of like bias and sparsity, et cetera, like in the downstream things that you might care about. So uh, how how do you, how do you go about solving
2: these? Yeah, that's a good question. So if you, the the lower you'd go down the funnel, LinkedIn doesn't have visibility on everything, right? We have visibility on when you apply on a job. After that, it's a bit, we have some mechanism in place to get visibility on part of the, 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 the labels, but it's noisy and it's not complete. So using that directly as a label is not is not something that we uh, we thought was the best way to go about. So uh, what we started looking into is trying to train models to have a distinction between this is a good apply. We think this is a good job application. We think this is a bad job application. Using other signals, we add a LinkedIn. And after that, we can take the output of this model and tell our ranking model like this is the quality of this apply, this is the quality of this other apply. Try to optimize for overall quality uh, in in the list of results. So this this indirect direct modeling of of good versus bad applies is is where we're uh, we're going there.
1: Yeah, yeah, that, that that's great, and uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, were there any was there any like pushback or like people that disagreed on like that being like uh, you know I, I imagine somebody might feel like hey this isn't like a ground truth label we're now like generating labels out of models like uh was anybody like uh, dissenting and you know how, how did you work around that or, or convince them
2: well, well so, some some people are never convinced right so we can just take the first step and show results uh, i think the most telling part was just coming with extreme case and coming up with the story so Uh, I think every good machine learning engineer should be able to tell a story with the data. And that's, that's how usually I try to build consensus just saying like with the way we're doing things, this kind of jobs get 10,000 applicants. It's just a bad use of everyone's energy there. And we think we can solve it in, in this other way. And, and, uh, being open as well to like trying other baseline and and comparing yourself along the way to convince yourself that you're introducing the right complexity at the right place. So storytelling and going step-by-step to make sure that each time you introduce complexity it pays off has been the the approach that I've been using there.
0: So as you're looking at these different signals and you're thinking about how you can use these signals, did you decide to go out and gather new data because of this I, and for those out there who are in positions where they're trying to figure out this same kind of, or they're in this same like phase of the process, right? How do you decide on what signals to go out and gather or if what you have is good enough?
2: That, that's a good question. The- I think it starts with the metric you want to optimize for your product, right? You need, you need a north Star and you say, this is what I want to improve to make the world better. And, and for us, as soon as we started to say we want to optimize for people getting hired, then everyone started thinking about, okay, what are the gaps? How can we measure people getting hired? And how can we have intermediate signals? How can we infuse those intermediate signals in our model? So for, for people that wants to go beyond top funnel signal or or beyond the first level of modeling. I think the first step is just define what you want to go after, make sure that it's measurable and you can experiment against it. Then after that, like we mentioned earlier, do a bunch of experiments, collect knowledge and iterate and, and grind on this problem until you solve it. Or most likely what happens is you overfit your metric, then you take a step back and you say, okay, what's the right metrics now that we're that good at this other metric and we're hurting ourselves by overfitting the metric. So that's that's kind of the iterative process where you define your true north, you grind so hard at it that you become inefficient. You take a step back, define a more refined true north, and then you you, you course correct there.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's great. And uh, definitely I, I remember lots of those uh, going back and forth on, uh, you know, doing really well on a metric and stepping back and saying like, oh, there's actually a better metric we can use here. Um, and, uh, definitely I think that that's a, uh, something that uh, is a continuous like uh conversation, uh, with basically a lot of stakeholders. Um, but yeah, that's cool. So the, uh, one of the thing you mentioned in the brief that uh, I'm kind of curious about uh, and somewhat related to this because, you know, you have lots of machine learning engineers. Uh, they they all know what their North Star is and this is the yes. thing we're going to optimize. And, you know, obviously a lot of brilliant people uh, on the team uh, have lots of great ideas that they want to try. Um, but sometimes there can be like a little bit of friction of like getting that into production. And, you know, one thing you said in this brief is that modeling decisions need to be taken into the context of infrastructure and the engineers that support them and vice versa. Can you maybe just like unpack that a bit? What do you, What do you mean by that?
2: Yeah, so so it comes back to our your model, right? If you have large models and you say, oh, I have this huge matrix win and you just think about your next step, it might seem a good decision. But one thing that we've started doing in our team is saying, okay, let's not just start to think one step ahead. Let's start to think five steps ahead. And how can we continue building upon what we're doing? So now each time that there's a design review, we I, I'm one of my litmus tests of is it a good design? Is I know that you'll be able to iterate like for the next. Three to four months on this thing, you'll be able to experiment, to learn, and improve, and you'll be able to be productive with this design. So that's that's a way, at least, to optimize for the infrastructure that you have available to you. Make sure that you can push those those new models, and you can can be productive there. You we, we when we do big changes like the one I mentioned earlier, moving from large model to smaller TensorFlow model, so some of it came as well with, with our infrastructure partners and just discussing. Okay, this is part of the model deployment that's difficult for us. We can optimize it only so far. And speaking with ML engineers, and this is like how we deploy our model. This is complex. There's many steps and and there's only so much we, we can optimize it. Then you start to think, okay, how do I remove frictions and all of these things? And and this is where the infra that you're using um, make a big difference.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, are, are there cases that you can remember, or examples you can remember where like maybe we didn't think about that infra and uh, it maybe resulted in like a letdown or, you know, uh, a failure that we could have prevented?
2: Um, yeah, there's there's one recent thing that happened where uh, one thing we do at LinkedIn is uh, online, when we train our model offline, we try to reproduce the feature value that we have online. So we kind of rebuild our snapshot of the world at the inference time. It means that we have two code paths to generate each features. One of them is, uh, offline in our grid and the other one is online when we do actual inference and one thing we learned recently is that uh, caching feature caching and feature timeout are hard to predict and if you don't monitor them you'll end up with a lot of inconsistencies so just being aware that oh my feature are cached what does it mean if i try to do real-time features update how do i do that and and oh there's higher chance of feature being missing online because there's timeout and there's cache miss and all of those things versus offline where everything is available because you already have the status of the world. So we've went through this line of thinking about, okay, how can we at least make sure that we monitor those things and, and that we, uh, we make our model more robust to, uh, to, to Definitely. those incidents happening?
1: Yeah. You know, just to kind of like connect this to things that I work on now, I I do a lot of uh, machine learning on like mobile sense data. And uh, one of the things I often see people do uh, mistakenly is essentially you train a model on like some date range of data, but like a lot of data comes in late. And so you might not have access to that, like in in real time. Uh, And so you definitely like have a train serve skew issue there uh, if you aren't careful.
0: Oh, that's so good. Yeah. That's so interesting. And that kind of stuff, you don't realize until you try it, right? And then you see that, oh, why is it not working? What's going on? And then you have to dig in and see. So one of my favorite things to ask people, Alex, when they come on here is war stories. And since we kind of are getting into it with that question that Skylar just asked, do you have any war stories or potentially like a model gone rogue story or something that you can share with us so that hopefully we don't repeat your same mistakes and we can learn through so, your you know, pain you know the thing that comes to mind when he asked that alex yeah. remember the the issue
1: with hdfs we're like
2: some- oh that was a fun <laughs> one <laughs> so so there, there all of we, we have Two HDFS clusters and at, at at LinkedIn, one for production and one for dev. and And most source of truth for for um, uh, our production flow is the production clusters. And there there's a bunch of data in there that that's hosted. And there was a, a an infrastructure issue at some point, and we a lot of the data that was there just started missing. <laughs> and everyone was was running around and into okay, how do we get our data back from the other clusters? And how do we how do we make it work? And it, it's it it's hard to send terabytes of data over the internet in a couple of minutes. So a lot of synchronization was there. So that, that, that was a a fun time. So since then we've put some, uh, some redundancy in place at LinkedIn and we're working to make sure that at least our critical flows are not affected by this kind of issues. And another one that I'll share is, is when I joined LinkedIn six years ago, was working on groups and send if you receive emails from groups at LinkedIn, I'm, I'm guilty of some of them. Uh, I, I'm sorry about that, but um, we were sending emails and uh, all of our metrics started to tank after refactor. I'm like, okay, what's happening? What, why, why are we sprouting down in our metrics? And, and we were looking into our model. It seems okay. We were looking at, at everything and didn't find what was going on. And it turned out that it was a tracking issues for some reason, Clicked stopped being tracked for, for, uh, for, for a segment of the population. So our training data started to reduce and, and all of our data set were skewed. And it was just spiraling into less and less and less engagement. And I, I guess the meta story there is each time I've seen, not each time, but often when I've seen issues with a machine learned model, often it was issues with how you track your labels or how you track your features, and something, something is, is is wrong there. So that's that's my advice if you're in in similar environment. Look at Make when you build up a new product, make sure that the data that you need is collected properly. Do the validation yourself because not all enge- all engineers understand what AI needs and, and make sure that you have a way to understand when it's going wrong.
0: Oh, that's so good. <laughs> and I love these. That's why for me, the war stories and hearing like when things actually go wrong as opposed to just, oh, well, it could go wrong like this. It stays in my head. And you said something earlier that is just brilliant. Every ML engineer or every good ML engineer should be able to tell a story with data. And so the reason for that is just because stories stick with us, right? Yeah, Stories are so much easier for us to recall. And so that's why for me, war stories are, are one of my favorite things to hear from people. So now as we look into the future, you've been able to get over this hump. You've made this transition, which is no small feat. What's next?
2: So we're already in part of the what's next. So the nice thing is with making our engineers more productive, innovations start to happen because we just empowered people to, to make it happen. So we have a lot of engineers working on things like how do we bring real-time features in? So we're starting to have real-time feedback in our model, which was something that was very very difficult to think about a couple of years ago. Now that we're on TensorFlow instead of linear models, we can start thinking about more sophisticated text understanding. So just how do we generate embeddings left and right? How do we have like BERT-like model in our in our system to understand members and jobs? So th- those things are starting to happen. And people are playing around with, with network architectures and, and, uh, how do we reward our models for doing the right thing? So, so what's next? It's really we gave more bandwidth for engineers to experiment. They took it and now they're, they're pushing the boundaries of what we can make for, uh, for job recommendations.
0: So uh, along those lines, I'm wondering, like, as Skyler was working with you at the beginning of this full transformation from a caterpillar to a butterfly, and he was there when you all were caterpillars. I imagine you have people that are coming on now that are new to the game. And they are, as you said, they've been empowered. How have you seen the changes from somebody who is more junior being able to run? Like, it's basically like you cleared the field out you have some blockers and now they can just go run and score touchdowns, if I understand correctly.
2: It's it's much easier. I I like to think that AI engineers are like water. We go where it's there's no friction to go. So if you make it hard to iterate on some models, the engineers will find a way around these models to, to do their iterations and get some results, right? So we made the core part of modeling easier, so people are spending more time there. Um, for for new engineers, um, I I the the thing that uh, we're putting in place is making sure that. They have context when they're they're having new ideas. So one thing we did in the last two years is, is revamp our design review process. Uh, it design review for it is, is not exactly the same for AI than, than other disciplines. So prior to that, we had design review in place, but it was very much inspired by what how you would design something like how do I implement a new key value store, how do I make this new mid-tier? So that, that was the kind of mind we had when we did our design review. So we, we revamped it for, for AI and Told us to update our templates and just make sure that people, when they do new model, they think about, okay, what kind of opportunity am I looking at? Uh, what's been done before at LinkedIn? What's been done before outside of LinkedIn? That, that supports what I want to do. And we force people to think about, okay, how do I measure success? Success shouldn't be I implement my plan. It's, it's a tautology if you do that. Success should be I improve this kind of exper- experience for, for our users. And forcing them or encouraging them to define baseline as well. So if you just have one solution, it's hard to understand the trade-off you're making. So starting to have people think more about why they're doing what they're doing, and that's something else. How does it compare to things that are happening in the organization, outside of the organization? And and the key component was, how do we make this feedback loop of, I have an idea, is it good or not? Make sure that they get feedback fast. What was the other thing we did to, uh, to... make everything work. So prior to that, people, it would take a couple of months to get your feedback. So oftentimes, people write their design. But by the time it's reviewed, everything is said and done. So it's not that useful of an exercise. Now we've put stronger SLA. So I see design review as equivalent of pull request review. It should happen kind of fast. You should get the feedback you need and we should de-risk it as much as possible so you can go in and, and get your wins.
1: Yeah, I think it's like an important point on like de-risking it. Um, cause I imagine, you know, like if somebody has like a new innovative idea that, uh, especially if it's sort of, uh, you know, something that hasn't really been tried out at least at LinkedIn, you know, like maybe there's examples in research, but it's like, uh, an open question of like whether, whether it'll work at LinkedIn or how much work it'll take to get it to, uh, work well. So like, uh, what are some examples of like, uh, things people can do to like de-risk, uh, before like diving deep into a project like that?
2: Uh, That's a good question. So I I think just getting feedback from your peer. So putting it out there and making sure that at least the knowledge around you is is gathered and 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 you get this feedback is is one piece of it. The second thing I like to do is try to get the end-to-end together as fast as possible. So you you have the complete feedback loop and you can have a better understanding of of what's the weakest part. Um, I've seen people stuck in analysis paralysis where you try to think of everything and nothing gets done. So my, my solution for that is just get your end dirty. Even if it's not perfect, at least you'll get some empirical that and some feeling around the complexity of the problem. So uh, talk to your peers, try to put something quick just to learn, not to final product, but just to learn what are the challenge and, and go from there.
1: Yeah, that's great. Yeah, awesome. Thanks Thanks for sharing. I, I, I think one thing we kind of like wanted to shift into and uh, uh, chat with you about. Um, obviously you were a very successful engineer at LinkedIn. Uh, you are a tech lead over a very large org you know obviously you mentor a lot of engineers and whatnot uh, and I was fortunately one of them. and uh, so what is like some advice you would give to a junior engineer we, uh, MLE? We, we have like tons of them in the community and I'm sure that uh, they're trying to learn and grow so like what what are your best fire tips for like these people that are like really trying to get their hands dirty in this stuff?
2: I think getting the ends dirty is is the first thing, right? You should look at your data and not just keep it high level. So many people look at metrics and go from there. I think you need to, to look at both ends. Anecdotal piece of of data also tells a story. So if you're able to connect metrics with anecdotal data, t- tell your story. I think you're you're in a good place to convince yourself and others that that you're doing the right thing. Um, other thing is don't plan only for your next experiment. Plan for a curriculum of experiment and plan for learning new things along the way, plan for constant iterations and improvement. That, that's how we do a machine learning experiment, learn and, and repeat. And um, yeah, always make sure that you compare what you're doing to other alternative and that you have success criteria. That's not, I did the code that I wanted to do. It should be, I'm trying to move something. If it didn't work, why didn't it work? And then readjust and, and continue from there.
0: That's so huge. And that was something I liked wrote that down now in the notes, it is such a distinction between I set this goal and I was able to implement what I said I was able to implement as opposed to I set this goal and this changed and this is how I moved the needle. Not yeah. like I wrote the code and it, it's now implemented. So that is a huge learning for me and it is very much like taking the the eye out of things it's like making it more about the project as opposed to myself and my ability right uh so i really like that as a team team mentality too i think we're coming to the end is there any question that or anything that you would have liked to have talked about that we didn't get to anything else that you want to mention
2: no, I think we covered it all. And I just want to re-emphasis it, it. Your work is not yourself. So try to detach yourself from it. Try to be as critical as you can. It, it's okay for an experiment to not work. It's not a reflection of your failure. It's just you learn something and you move on. So should be comfortable with, with those learning that didn't result in the model that you ran.
0: And your team is hiring linguists?
2: Uh, I don't know how many linguists we're hiring these days, but we're always hiring uh, ML engineers. So uh,
0: there you go. So if anyone wants to go on. and work with Alex, he's always hiring ML engineers. You heard it straight from him. Yeah. This has been awesome. And highly recommended to work with Alex, by the way. Thanks, God. That's it. That's uh, where Skyler was trained in the <laughs> the deep arts, the dark arts of the ML engineer. So this is all this has been awesome man like there are probably 20 quotes that i could pull out of here and will recycle and will reuse in other conversations that i have to make myself sound smart and like i know what i'm talking about (laughs) so i appreciate this so much
2: thanks a lot for the opportunity it was nice uh, discussing with you
0: awesome thanks we'll see you later and if anyone is still listening give us a like and drop a comment, all that good stuff, share and subscribe. You can reach out to us on the MLOps community Slack. We're there. Thanks for listening. See you all later.